Welcome fellow pilots and other podcast listeners to another episode of the Alaska Pilots Podcast. I'm your host, Strategic Communication Chairman David Campbell. Today we are going to be talking about what happened over the holiday operation. I know a lot of you were out in that mess and, and we have a lot to say about it. We're also going to talk about the severe irregular operations, otherwise known as SIO, and a little bit about the culture that is evolving at our company here at Alaska Airlines. To do that, besides myself, we've got Will McQuillan, your MEC chairman, Joe Youngerman, your MEC vice chairman, and later in the episode, we're going to bring in some committee chairman, Scott Rubin from the scheduling committee. He's a scheduling committee chairman, and also Mike Reinmuth from the contract compliance chairman. A lot of you may know him as Rhino, so thanks everyone for joining us. Will, I, I think everybody knows, but maybe for those who don't, let's start with a, a bit of a recap over what happened over the holiday week. Yeah, thanks, David. I think we'll start with just a few facts that kind of really paint a picture of kind of the scope of the struggle that was out there before we get into, I think, what really resonates, which is the impact that occurred on the pilots. And if you look at the, the number of flights canceled, over the course of the event, gathered over the course of you know several days. It really depends upon which day you measure from and to. But Scott, why don't you speak a little bit to, to that since you've gathered that data for us on a daily basis? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Will. On the 26th, the day after Christmas, obviously, uh, when the snow hit and impacted Seattle the most, we had 237 mainline cancellations. And then as we kept going on from the snowstorm, you know, we had 129 the next day and then between 85 and 100 for the next couple of days. So right after Christmas, the direct impact was over 500 flights canceled. And then even today, as we're still trying to recover, um, you know, we're seeing in the 60s and 70s flights canceled as we try to re still recover the operation. Yeah. And I think that the impact of that, obviously passengers and obviously pilots, which we'll, we'll talk about. But if you look to bottom line, we had a similar, if not less severe event in 2017 that was noted in the financials that had a 25 to $30 million impact on the bottom line. You know, and it certainly was covered very well in the, the local media talking about pain points um, that were experienced. But I think one of the, the other things that we experienced that night as we were in regular conversations was the company decision to turn around the flights inbound to Seattle just simply because they couldn't handle them once they landed. Everybody had to return to their, their departure station. That was kind of an incredible decision to make. Yeah, we had that conversation with Ladner, uh, you and I on the phone. And uh, when he said we're, all the inbounds are getting turned around back to where they came from because we cannot have park them here at Seattle and we're running out of space at alternates near in the Pacific Northwest. Um, kind of shocking. I've yeah. never seen that before in my, my career. Yeah, and of course my focus is more on what the, the pilot perspective and the pilot impact was of the, you know, the operational struggles, if you will. And I think some of the ones that really stuck out to me and, you know, as well to you, were the pilots just couldn't reach crew scheduling. We had reports of up to seven hour callback times with crews stranded with cancellations and just absolutely no plans and no idea what the next steps were. Uh, crews that had to arrange their own transport to and from hotels, even had to arrange their own hotels and come out of pocket for them. Uh, the obvious issues that uh, plague us every time that we have a snow event with de-icing and then tug and pushback issues. I guess we can get into specifics in a second. The overarchingly changing trips, canceled trips, the lack of ground crew being a big piece of it as well. And this is something that I experienced firsthand and actually many of these things firsthand when I flew the other day. I mean, it's just stunning the degree to which we were unable to, to operate. And, uh, you know, as you just alluded to, we were in regular contact with um, with management throughout this. And we'll talk about the SIO process, I guess, here in a little bit. But um, that started early, early in the morning with contact from the company and uh, continued with, you know, multiple phone calls throughout the day, um, you know, as, from pilots, as well as, you know, contact with management, talking about the, the elements of the operation that were breaking. And I will tell you that I did share some of those impacts, and this is what I've heard from pilots, you know, in those conversations. The, the tugs weren't being chained, and therefore we were having struggles pushing back, 
in the snow and the ice. And that was confirmed, by the way, in a dispatch message to pilots. It led to huge delays for those waiting to push and huge delays for those who'd landed. Obviously, you've got duty time issues, misconnect issues, broken trips. I mean, the, the impact right there and in, in all these things is directly felt. Uh, multiple, again, uh, ground handling issues, more delays, similar impacts. We talked about the, the crew scheduling element of it. Pilots are unable to reach crew scheduling. The system, that phone tree system, hung up on them. They had no idea what to do when their flights canceled, what their revised trip looked like, what hotel they were going to. And you know, one thing that's near and dear to us is which section of the CBA applied to their reassignments, right? Um, we heard of lack of de-icing coordination, more huge wait times. And then the one that uh, surfaced, I guess, what was it, Scott, like midday, was a change in the fuel tankering policies that kind of uh, made it extremely difficult for pilots to get to and from work because they couldn't access the jump seat. Yeah, that was a huge problem for our pilots when they decided to uh, tanker so much fuel you couldn't accommodate a jump seater on our flights. And, you know, we brought that up early in the day as soon as we heard about it with management um, that that was a problem to get that, just like you said, pilots to and from work and ability for people to come in. I, I will emphasize too the frustration on the phone tree with crew scheduling that we brought this up in February of uh, 2020 at our scheduling management group. And the fix according to the company was, well, when this happens, we're going to improve the phone tree. And what they actually did was make it so crew schedulers could call out. But if there was a certain amount of call volume coming into the system, it would simply hang up on the pilots. And that's what we experienced. So in all actuality, what happened is what the company designed to happen, where crew scheduling could call out and call who they wanted. But it hung up on the pilots as planned. And, and that's a problem. We can't even help you help yourselves because your phone tree failed. Yeah, I, I would say if we had to pick one pain point out of all the things that we talked about that day and throughout that week, it had to be the contact with crew scheduling. It's everything that you just said. The inability to know what's next, what's my assignment, what am I doing, what provision of the CBA am I operating under, that complete lack of information and operational you know, direction that, that pilots need on a daily basis. And I will, I will say, you know, yeah, the, you couldn't get a hold of the company, but our pilots were able to get a hold of contract compliance. And that was awesome. Yeah. I, and we'll talk about that here in a yep. bit. But Mike and his team took an overwhelming number of calls. And I think, you know, we'll thank them numerous times, but they were certainly an asset to this pilot group throughout this, this event. Yeah, so Will, I, I mean, a lot of us made similar observations. You put a fine point on it, but I know you were also able to have conversations with management while this was going on. What did you learn from those conversations? Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that they were very, very candid conversations um, about what was happening that day with a shared understanding, I might add, of what was broken, what was failing, and what needed to be fixed. And, you know, I clearly stated that from my perspective, they gambled and lost by trying to do way too much with way too little in this event. Um, you know, made it very clear that the yardstick that they were going to be judged by, by the way, and this was from that first point of contact with, uh, with management that morning, was how they fared in this event compared to their competitors. Specifically, how did Delta operate in this exact same mess? Um, I would say that, you know, certainly there were candid discussions, a good exchange of honestly understanding that things had failed. And so it was communicated to me in the course of all of that, that there was going to be a company plan and there was going to be a company communication piece that would come out. And, you know, by Tuesday night, the employees of Alaska had heard absolutely nothing. And that's why we sent out that initial comm, giving pilots their resources, giving them their backstop resources. If you can't reach scheduling, here are the additional resources to help you understand what your next plan is, what you should be doing. Um, and candidly, I expected, we expected, I'd say also with Scott, the full ownership of this meltdown and specifically a bulleted list of specific lessons learned and the fixes that were going to be in place to fix it. And let's just say that didn't happen. So, Scott, you mentioned a great contrast to pilots' inability to contact crew scheduling. They were able to contact the contract compliance team members. And we've got, as I said earlier, Mike Reinmuth, who's the chairman of that committee. Mike, let me bring you into this conversation a little bit. And 
what was your call volume like? And and maybe put that into some context of like a normal day and, and what it was like over the holiday. Yeah, great question, David. And uh, I would say the call volume itself was at least tenfold of what we would normally experience on a day-to-day basis. They were like rapid fire. Uh, we knew as a committee that the weather and the holidays were coming down the pipe. So I talked to all the guys on the committee and I said, hey, we need to make sure that we are responding to these guys because there will be a lot of calls. So I want to say great job to Tom and Trevor and John because nobody could do this alone because I was out flying. I'm sure some of these other guys were too. And so that's, they really made the contract compliance team an effective team. Yeah, well, it's not surprising. Do, do you have any data on the how long it would take from a, a pilot calling the CCT hotline to um, being, you know, talking to an actual person, or at least on average? The time it would take for us to call back can be measured in minutes, uh, not instantly, because of the way the system works and how we get the messages, but more often than not. One of the crew member, one of the contract compliance members would be calling back within minutes and wouldn't reach the pilot because he's already talking to one of the other guys. So uh, a really effective way for pilots to reach and talk to somebody about what's going on. Yeah. And in any case, a lot shorter than seven hours, it sounds like, right? <laughs> right. And, and, you know, I want to put a point on that, too. The fact that they were able to return that call so quickly was meant that they were dealing with issues that they deal with every single day. There wasn't a lot of need to research, to talk, to powwow, to come up with the response for the pilot. We knew what the issue was and we know what the contract says. And I think that that points, you know, directly to kind of an issue that we're going to talk about later here, which is one of culture. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, before we get on to that, and while we're talking about CCT, Mike, why don't you take this opportunity to put out that CCT number for future reference. The CCT number is 888-767-2CCT. All right. Thanks a lot, Mike. I'll, I'll put that in the show notes as well, but it's good to have it out there uh, live. So, I mean, Will, you mentioned culture. What What's that looking like? Where are we going with culture here? Simply put, David, what was said in that chairman's letter and what we discussed as an MEC is that what we have here is a cultural problem. There is a lack of leadership. And, and you know, that's what the MEC has heard loud and clear from the pilots. And that was the foundation of that letter, as you know. Um, you know, the cultural issues here that we have are that, you know, we have a culture that seems just myopically focused operationally, you know, constantly shorting the resources needed to allow pilots to do their jobs. We have one that rejects industry-proven solutions in lieu of trying to do things cheaply. We always talk about the Alaska discount, right? Um, a culture that refuses to engage with us on real incentivization pay is a really good example to get pilots vaccinated, choosing instead a $200 stipend when there was a clear industry bar set by a number of airlines. You know, And along those lines, by the way, while we're talking about the vaccine issue, where they promised all labor groups that they would engage with us meaningfully on vaccine policy. And I want to be very clear on this, that so far that promise has taken the form of briefing us on what they've decided and asking us for our reactions with future promises to sit down and talk about our concerns. Yeah, that's very true, Will. I can, you know, just, I was just thinking about it this morning. You know, I remember a call that uh, the officers had with management uh, last August and uh, talking about how they would work closely with us to develop whatever policy they were going to land on. And we emphasize the importance of that, that we really need to be part of the process. And, you know, of course, that didn't happen. It's it's always the same old story, the, the one size fits all option. Uh, we get briefed on things. Not We're not included in, in the inception of anything. We're not included in the design of anything. We're included on the briefing of a policy once it's been landed on by them. And that's not 
you know, I, I get really tired of reading these emails from the company where they talk about we're, we're you know, working with or cooperating with our labor groups. To, that's not cooperating. That's not working with. A, a briefing an hour or two before you put out a policy is not working with us. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we basically don't get to be part of the sausage making process, but we get told to eat the sausage. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and we are different. We are we are pilots. We are not flight attendants. We're not mechanics. Those are all great work groups, but they, you know, they do different jobs with different requirements and different standards. And, you know, pilots are kind of a unique group. We're the only ones as that airplane pushes off the gate that says, you know, I am I am fit to fly. And, uh, you know, are, we're the only ones that have to uh, that, that are taking a, a medical every six months to to keep our jobs and to keep ourselves in the cockpit. You know, we we have unique needs. We are a unique group and we need to be treated that way. It doesn't mean we're better or worse than any other group, but we are unique. And management continues to fail to understand that. Exactly. And I think there's no better example of that. I mean, this is going back in my tenure as the ST, but putting together the HIMS program, as you just said, we have unique requirements with our medical certification and the desire by the company to put together a one size fits all policy that would handle drug and alcohol issues in, in lieu of what was needed, which was an industry standard, well templated HIMS program. It, it wasn't rocket science. But instead, we had this focus that one size fits all and then seek the input later. Absolutely. You know, it just it doesn't work. I can even remember in the early days of Virgin America, you know, they kind of, you know, even our uniforms, they wanted everybody to sort of look alike because we're all like. But, I, you know, I give credit to their management. They did fairly quickly figure out that pilots are a unique group and and and. They have to be treated a little bit differently because they have different needs and different responsibilities. And that I don't know why that is a lesson that just seems unlearnable uh, here. Uh, we, so we have to keep making the same mistakes over and over. The issue is that they don't meaningfully address the concerns and the issues raised by your MEC. That's true. You know, I, typically it's it's not an issue uh for them, our issues are not issues for them unless it affects them in a negative way. And then then it becomes an issue. Otherwise, they're really not concerned about our concerns. And we've seen that again and again. You know, it's we've been making lots of uh, concerns known about our staffing and our reserves and, and fatigue and and all of that. And I know that, Ruben, you're up close and personal on this issue and, and you're seeing it firsthand. You're seeing the damage that's being done firsthand. So. Maybe we should hear from you on that issue. Yeah, Joe, when you look at the reserve utilization over the last two weeks, and we have wraps that are 100% utilized, when the stated goal by the company is to utilize a reserve 65% of the time, the 100% is just, it's, it's overtaxed. You know, the operation's overtaxed because of the staffing level. And, you know, we've record amount of fatigue calls in the last two weeks more than I've ever seen here at Alaska, um, all because that's the last safety valve a pilot has to remove themselves from the flight, is to use our fatigue language. And the impact, you know, not only on the operation, but on the pilots themselves is huge. When a reserve is flying 90 hours a month, <laughs> that is like 200 to a bid block holder, you know, give or take. Right. It is felt very, very differently. And again, that was brought up in the letter. We raised those issues. You were in that meeting, that, you know, management meeting where we raised these issues and proffered easy solutions to address some of these concerns. And obviously, as pointed out in the letter, here we are today with those concerns dismissed either to Section 6 or pilots being told that they have the ultimate relief valve, which is a fatigue report. Right. We, I mean, we presented commonsensical ways to help address reserve fatigue, and ultimately they were ignored by management. I think that's a great point, Scott, about, you know, 90 hours for reserve being like 200 hours for a line holder. I think that's very true. Like, I don't think in my entire airline career, and I've sat a fair amount reserve over it, I've ever flown 90 hours. You know, that's, that's a hard 90 hours. And, uh, you know, Fatigue is is 
is a real problem. It's a real concern. It's, it's, you know, and it, it, it's, shouldn't be taken lightly. You know, if a guy's, if a guy's uh, fatigued and he needs to go home, uh, you, you might just be pushing him too hard and you're, you know, he's not, uh, he's not sandbagging. These aren't industry newbies that we have flying for us. These are guys have been around a block a long time. They know what reserve is all about. They know it's expected. But, uh, you know, when I ran into a couple of guys that, uh, when I was doing training and when we did our coffee sit that said they were just, they were just worn out. They were just absolutely frustrated and worn out because every day was just a, a disaster, you know, with reassignment after reassignment after reassignment. And there is a human cost to this. It's not going to show up on a line item as on a spreadsheet, but there's a human cost to this. And it, it, it's, it may be difficult for some to see the, you know, the effect of it. But I think as pilots, we understand it very well. Yeah. We, to your point, we get feedback from the pilots all the time on the overutilization. And, uh, I mean, I got a text from a pilot yesterday that showed me a six day trip he got on reserve that not only went from Hawaii to the East coast, but then through Southeast Alaska. And the only reason the trip was legal is because he had 30 hours and 30 minutes of rest in Sitka. And we wonder why a pilot gets smoked on reserve. Yeah. And again, I want to return to that. This points out a cultural issue here that we have an issue where the choice is made to operate with extremely lean resources and to, as I always say, overclock the operation. And, and that is a primary concern. And as I've said before, that's the misery index that's felt by every pilot out there flying the line right now. And also, I think it's fair to say, too, in that meeting, which again happened months ago, as well as some portions of this reserve fatigue issue and reserve utilization um, and our solutions were proffered up to two years ago, you know, um, have gone unaddressed. Again, a cultural issue. Yeah, I mean, these ideas to mitigate reserve fatigue were hatched out of the FSEG, the Fatigue Safety Action Group, in 2017. Mm -hmm. and, and that's four years ago. Yep. And I remember, you know, several years ago having that conversation with management that this issue needed to be addressed, imploring them to address it. Let's not forget, too, why FAR 117 came to existence in the first place. It was to mitigate pilot fatigue. And the company has a responsibility to, in order to follow the FAA guidance, to m mitigate it and make changes. And we haven't seen that. Right. The whole FSAG is a function of part 117. Yeah. It's literally part of our, what's called the fatigue risk management plan. That is a FAA approved document and gives guidance on how we're as a company supposed to mitigate our pilots fatigue. Yeah. Identify it and then mitigate it. Yes. Right. And that's why I find it very offensive that those priorities are dismissed to section six bargaining. I'm sorry, they don't belong there. They belong being addressed in real time. Yeah, safety should always be a number one priority above all else. You know, we, we certainly understand that as professionals and we'd like our management to understand that as well. You know, fatigue re rears its head in various ways too. You know, I mean, you get fatigue calls, but you also, you know, they're all concerned about increased sick, call or sick calls. And honestly, that's that's also a byproduct of fatigue. A guy's not actually on a trip, but he's just straight up tired. He's fatigued. Now, he's he's not filing a fatigue report. He's not going home off a trip. But that is that is a byproduct of working people too hard. Is you're going to increase, you know, lack of scheduling flexibility and working your people too hard, you're going to see an increase in sick calls. And so what's their answer to that? It's not reevaluate. Maybe we're working people too hard. Maybe people are fatigued. It's let's call them. That's their solution to that problem. You know, you go back to the issue of culture. I think pilots here, you know, there's there's a, a sense, especially here lately, of, of feeling intimidated you know, feeling pressured to come to work, you know, whether it's COVID issues or fatigue or sick calls. Uh, you know, we had a discussion with management recently where, you know, they suggested that uh, they weren't intimidating pilots, that they're just, you know, just asking for, for doctor's letters. But, but I think, you know, it's just unrealistic. We all know as pilots that uh, that is subtle pressure. It's, it's uh, your calculus changes when, you know, you're told that 
by crew scheduling when you call in uh, to call in sick that you have to talk to your chief pilot. And you don't usually have to talk to your chief pilot unless you've done something wrong. And that's the message, whether it's intended or not. That's the message that gets sent to pilots, that uh, you're bad for calling in sick. We don't trust you. And uh, we're going to want a further explanation. We're going to want a doctor's note, what have you. In the middle of a explosive uh, outbreak of this latest Omicron variant of, of COVID. I mean, it's... It's pretty outrageous. It's really hard to make this stuff up. Right, Joe. I mean, that's really the salient point here. Mid-pandemic, pilots are feeling intimidated and pressured and, you know, that their integrity is being questioned in terms of their decision to call in unfit for duty. And, you know, it came in a lot of forms of emails, um, which, of course, we have copies of these emails. And I think the most frustrating part is that we thought that we had covered this years ago with a simple statement that the pilot is not fit for duty and please put me on sick leave. That agreement was was hammered out with the MEC and the base chief pilots and the chief pilot's office years ago. And instead we heard, you know, a few weeks ago here that the nature of the illness is being questioned. And I'll tell you, that's completely inappropriate. You know, it should be noted that the company, by the way, as you alluded, does have a right to request a doctor's note in accordance with the CBA. But that's at company expense. And regardless of intent, the point that was made time and time and time again in these multiple conversations that have been had with management on this issue is that pilots felt pressured. They felt intimidated. They felt like their integrity was being questioned in this process over their simple decision that they were not fit for duty. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, in any good relationship, the foundation of it is trust. And, you know, you cannot have a good relationship with someone or an entity when you feel that you're not trusted and when your professionalism is questioned. And for no good reason, that happened. The company was having operational problems that, you know, are a, a result of poor decision making that, that on their part. And so in the midst of a Omicron COVID outbreak, uh, the fact that uh, there might be a slight uptick in the number of sick calls shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. And it's certainly no reason to start calling in to question the integrity and the professionalism of the pilots that are out there busting their behinds every day on your behalf. Yeah. And I think, you know, one key point, too, and I made this numerous times in these phone calls that I've had here in the last week or so, is that it's one thing to identify a problem or a perceived problem on the company side and come to us and say, we have a concern, we have an issue and have a discussion. It's a completely different thing to be advised that a unilateral change has been made in policy or that they've decided to go a certain course and not have the ability to do anything other than to react to it. And that is, again, a cultural issue. That is continually the position that we are put in, is being told of something that the company has unilaterally decided to do, and it's something that's typically a stick rather than a carrot, and being told that, you know, we can react to it, but we never had the opportunity to proffer inputs into it. We're fully triaging instead of wellness care. You know, and I have to be perfectly candid with you. I, when people ask what the reaction is, it's it's just, it's disappointing. Will, we've been talking today here a little bit about your conversations with management and your chairman's letter that you put out on the new year was, you know, let's face it, pretty critical of, of management and the operation. What were your conversations like with them following your letter? There were numerous conversations, and I will just simply say that four very high-level, very animated, candid conversations around the issues that we've been talking about today, cultural issues, specifically the some of the issues around sick leave, some of the issues in and around COVID um, quarantine and co uh, COVID leave procedures, um, lack of partnership with ALPA. Those things... Um, are ongoing, but the one that happened most recently was was last night, to be perfectly honest with you. And again, I will say that I made that point very clearly that this pilot group feels operational pressure every day, that they feel harassed, intimidated by a sick leave policy that seems to question their integrity, 
and that they feel that there is a very deaf ear to their concerns. So you were able to communicate a lot of the concerns the pilots have brought up, right? Yes, very candidly. And like I said, some of those discussions certainly got heated, but I think that I was able to drive home several really parent concerns and parent issues. You know, And I, I've mentioned that pilots feel that at every turn, there is a decision made to break out the stick in lieu of a carrot. I mentioned that pilots do feel like their concerns are just dismissed and that they're not respected. You know, we've been talking, for example, way too long about scope and scheduling flexibility, and we're openly told that those priorities are dismissed, especially the scope priority, right? How much do we hear us talk down to that we don't need that, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mentioned that the overriding sentiment is that pilots feel upset, tired, and very candidly again, that they have very little faith in this management team. Um, you know, I think there's no greater example about the disrespect element of it than, for example, on Pilot Appreciation Day in LAX, our pilots were given Play-Doh and bubbles as a sign of appreciation. I mean, it, Scott, you can speak back to this, back to the payday candy bar thing. Yeah, gestures like that, you know, address our issues, solve our problems, scope, work rules are like you said, Will, are very important. Uh, not a payday candy bar or some Play-Doh. It, right. it doesn't do anything for a pilot. And I think maybe it's just kind of one final point is that uh, I really did drive home the point about the company's changing policies, inconsistent messaging to our pilot group on COVID. You know, I've reached out to the chairman at Frontier and Spirit and American and Delta, United, JetBlue and Southwest and forwarded all of their quarantine and pay protection agreements and policies to management. There is a clear template on how to proceed with this. And let's not forget as well that we had a COVID MOU in, in process. We also had a commuter agreement in process, both of which were canceled mid-pandemic by this management team. So we'll see how those conversations come out when the company finally articulates a policy when it comes to quarantining and pay protection um, here shortly. But they have the information, they know where the industry stands, and the next decisions are theirs, whether or not they want to pursue an Alaska discount. Right, and what was their response to those conversations you had? Well, I hate to say it depended obviously upon who I was talking to. Um, some sympathetic ears and some, yes, we've seen this movie before. And in some cases, combative and defensive, you know. Uh, let's just say that I don't know that I anticipate any big changes to the issues that were raised in the chairman's letter, but they do know the pilot sentiment now. And again, as I said, they know the industry landscape. As I think about all this I and, and talking to pilots out on the line, I... I really think it's important that, you know, this pilot group understands that uh, we hear you, we hear you, but we also are just as frustrated as you are and just as uh, aggravated that this is the culture uh, that they've chosen to foster here. You know, it's culture is a very important thing for any corporate organization. And I think it's very difficult to change. It's like trying to turn a large ship. It, it, there is change that happens over time. And, and once, once it happens, it's hard to bring it back. And I think we're seeing a level of aggravation and frustration in this pilot group that I've never seen before. And I would like to say that, you know, it's getting, you know, things are going to happen that it's going to get better, but we're not seeing the changes that need to be made on management's part to improve this relationship. Um, you know, we're still being treated essentially like children. They're the parents and we're the children and they're going to decide what's best for us and we should just do as we're told. Uh, we are all professionals. We are here because we've earned the right to be here. We are here because we have the experience to be here. And we go out there and safely and professionally operate these aircraft every day to a customer base that is very pleased with our performance. And so we want that recognition uh, in dealing with management that we are not uh, children, 
that we are partners and that we expect to be treated that way, not uh, talked down to. Um, you know, it's it's just uh, the stick uh, has been used too much. It's time for some carrots. I think, you know, we, we've talked about this a lot. And, uh, you know, it's really, I think they're kind of at a turning point. They're, they can continue to erode this culture into a very angry group and people will continue to express their dissatisfaction uh, with their feet, uh, with leaving to go other places, to find a better place to work, to find better work rules, to find job protections, to, defi- to find a management that doesn't view us simply as a line item on a balance sheet and nothing more. It's a fallacy to think that, you know, an airline has to have unhappy employees or, or has to, you know, have this kind of culture to be profitable. In fact, I would say just the opposite is true. I, you know, in the short term, they may not have seen uh, uh, consequences to, to, you know, developing a negative culture in this employee group. But over time, I think you will see that. And, uh, you know, it will come back to bite them that, uh, you know, you can run a profitable business and have happy employees. There are many, many companies out there across the spectrum of the business world that have demonstrated that. And the two are not mutually exclusive. Yeah, that's very true, Joe. And one of the things that we brought up a number of times is our concerns about management's ability to execute on their future plans. Yeah, and that's a point that we've articulated before, David, and I think we can once again speak to it. We've had concerns that management cannot execute on the growth plan that they've articulated time and time again to investors. You know, as we said before, noted, they've already, within the constraints of the current CBA, approached your MEC seeking relief and contractual changes to accommodate that growth plan. And that was something that the MEC, you know, unanimously rejected. Um, I spoke last podcast about the fact that the, the misery index, if you will, is off the hooks, Right. And as we noted earlier today, the reserves are already overflying even the company desired metric. But one of the most telling things that I think is a concern when we talk about you know achieving growth targets is the fact that attrition is so high. We talked last podcast about the attrition for year in 2021. Well, let's look at where we are for 2022. And it's January 5th, mid-afternoon as we record this, right? And we're already at nine resignations for the year. And there's a cascading effect to those in terms of abandoned sim resources and scrambling to try and fill them to fill classes that, you know, already constrain those growth plans. You know, I think probably, and I believe that we've noted this before as well, that even some people in management have noted and conceded that the operation is already running overclocked, if you will. As an example to that, Will, in San Francisco for January, we had a sum total of two first officers on reserve. That's it for, for the whole base. So to your overclock and the staffing issues and them having trouble backfilling those positions has been a problem. And I've always said too, and we've discussed this too, that when reassignments become an everyday tool to cover the operation, that that, you know, speaks to the fact that we are inadequately covered when it comes to reserves or simply that we're overclocked and, and searching for resources where there are none. I agree with you. It's certainly a canary in the mine to let you know something's going wrong. So, Will, you've identified a lot of problems that are going on in the company. What do you see as solutions to these? Uh, the solution is simply that we need true leadership at this company and a culture that recognizes the value and the professionalism of their employees, one that values the contributions of labor. And that starts with taking ownership, by the way, when we talk about true leadership, of the failures that we've just experienced, right? We shouldn't see underlings out owning the company's issues. Um, One, again, that values the contributions of the labor groups, not just the pilots, but all the labor groups here at Alaska Airlines. And one that embraces industry standard solutions in lieu of the, as we've said so many times, Alaska discount. Above all, one that respects pilots as professionals, and obviously, one that values and recognizes the importance of having a market contract that reflects the interests and needs of this pilot group. 
Well, let's, I mentioned earlier in the podcast, we were going to bring in Mike Reinmuth, the chairman of the CCT. So let's talk a little bit more specifically about some of the issues pilots were experiencing over the holiday snow event. And, and a big one of those was the severe regular operations. And I think there's some of the feedback we got there. There may be a few misunderstandings about what that is and, and where it developed. So Mike, thanks for joining us on the podcast. And first of all, how long is that been in the contract? The language in the contract 25Y, which describes severe irregular ops, has been in the contract probably four contracts ago, three or four contracts ago. So this is not a new concept. Uh, it's decades old. And what the pilots often hear when they're speaking with schedulers Schedulers like to throw the word around irregular ops, irregular ops. Well, that's part of their vocabulary, but what's part of our contract is the concept of severe irregular ops. And that goes into some, it's pretty narrow, some additional tools that scheduling has to keep the operation running that they otherwise wouldn't. And that is instead of offering assignments as a pilot transits his base, they assign a pilot as a pilot transits his base. And if that happens to the pilot, they have a little bit more compensation, right? When that happens as a pilot, anytime a pilot is rescheduled, it's their expectation that they're told what section of the contract is being identified. So more often than not, under, under this most recent week, there were hundreds of cancellations on the day in question. As Scott said earlier in the podcast, he described day by day how many cancellations there were. Well, every time a pilot is canceled, they fall under cancellation 25U. And then it depends on whether they're in base or out of base how that cascades down, but 25Y, severe irregular ops, is different than that, and it's very narrow compared to 25U. But to your question, you get 150% if you're reassigned under 25Y. Right. So right. There is some benefit. There is some benefit, and it's a trade-off in terms of that scheduling flexibility for ensuring that the pilot is compensated versus just being placed on cancellation makeup, for example. And I think that it bears discussion because I, I think that there's been a lot of misunderstanding that it's not just 25Y, but it's also covered in Section 2 of Definitions that describes severe irregular operations. And then the parent LOA, the letter of agreement, severe irregular operations, which was pen and ink back in 2009. And specifically, these outline not just the conditions upon which a severe irregular operation or an SIO can be petitioned for, but also the conditions under which we are bound by the agreement to allow that. Uh, I think that there was some thought process that we have a great deal of latitude and discretion in terms of being permissive of that exercise of 25Y or the LOA. And the reality is, is that we have the ability to evaluate the evidence against the CBA. And if it fits the definition and if it fits the letter of agreement, then we are essentially bound by the agreement in the CBA, just as we expect that the management team is bound by our CBA in daily operations. And you know, I kind of want to clear up a little bit of that, that it generally starts with a process in which management reaches out to, in this case, Mike and his team is the initial point of contact identified and makes the case that they need that provision of the contract exercised. And the morning in question, Mike and then Scott and I were all on a three-way call where we discussed whether or not this fit the definition and if we were bound by the request and to what extent we thought that the request met the definition. Um, the company obviously was seeking a much greater time period and they were also seeking more than just one base. 
they were looking for an SIO in both Portland and Seattle. And so we evaluated where we were bound by the contract. And then we reached out to the management team, in particular, in this case, John Ladner, and told him where we felt that his request was, you know, was fitting of the language of the CBA. Right. So, you know, there's not just the the issue of where it is and what it is, but also what the association and what, you know, the MEC is bound by by agreement. Is that fair? No, I think you characterize that well. Not to mention, you know, we had extensive conversations that morning, that Sunday morning, um, analyzing the weather, the forecast, the time, the timeliness of the snow event, um, the impact on the operation, what we were seeing at SeaTac Airport in general, uh, and at other airports, and and that's why we limited the scope of the SIO to Seattle and shortened the timeline, um, which can always be extended if need be. Right, exactly. But we're not about to give some type of a blanket approval when we can't be assured that it applies. Right. I mean, our decisions points that we made were based off of the facts that we could find, not that was necessarily presented to us from an outside source like the company. Yeah. And and actually, I think it's probably fair to say, too, we reached deep on this one in terms of reaching back to the original authors of the language to determine exactly what the intent was as well to ensure that uh, we were indeed bound by it. Yes, very much so. Mike, I know you were part of the process that they've just been describing, and I'm sure that involved a lot of work. After it was decided, your work continued in your role as the CCT chairman and, as of course, as a CCT member taking calls. What was that like? Well, a, a couple of things that I wanted to share as far as the, the types of calls that we received during this week and even more specifically as far as the caller who has cba knowledge who understands the language who's been in a similar situation before and can talk coherently with the scheduler when they can get a hold of them that there are certain stipulations of how they should be rescheduled and usually those turn out pretty pretty good so it is really incumbent upon every pilot to be familiar with your CBA in an, in enough of a way that you can have a conversation with other pilots, with CCT, and especially when the time comes to know your contractual rights when the scheduler or schedulers change your trip and you just need to have the ability to have that conversation. Right. I mean, the first step in protecting yourself and protecting the contract is to know what your rights are, I think is what you're saying, right? Right. If you have no concept other than word of mouth of how things work, more often than not, you might end up with that short end of the stick. Yeah. And, I, you know, I've heard Will mention this a number of times. I like the way he construes the contract as the, the big book of money and days off. Or something like that, right, Will? Right, exactly. And to, to not know your contractual rights, to not know the big book, is to leave money or days off on the table. In these occasions where management is you know, getting into the contract in this way, it's sort of ripe for uh, those sorts of misunderstandings to, as, as Will says, leave the pilot on the short end of that stick. So the, the more you know, the, the better off you are. And, and which isn't to say don't call CCT, right? I want to make clear, like, that's not the point you're making here. It just the, the more we can all do to protect that contract, the, the better. Absolutely. And one last thing I want to remind everyone, and that is this electronic notification that we have all received on a monthly basis in one form or another. Keep in mind, when the pilot accepts an electronic notification, he may be waiving his rights to one thing or another without even knowing what the change is before he has a chance to read it. So this was never the intent of the electronic notification was to reassign pilots. The company promised ALPA years ago before crew access was even born that this would not be used in this manner yet this is where we find ourselves 
So I always talk to the pilot and say, please tell me that you clicked ignore. Yes, I did. Excellent. So now we can talk about all of his rights when it comes to alternative trip makeup and all of those things that go along with a canceled flight that now they're trying to shove a different trip down their throat. And so to put a finer point on it, I think the pilots may interpret electronic notification in many ways. You're speaking specifically when you're in crew access and you have a notification of a schedule change and that pilots should do their homework and call CCT if necessary prior to accepting that change to make sure that they understand the provisions of the contract that apply. I see your point, Will, but I want to emphasize that any time the pilot clicks accept, he is giving away some of his choices. Yeah, I get your point, Mike. I just wanted to make sure that people understood that we're talking about specifically crew access and at the same time that they should know their rights before they accept that reassignment. I think that's the big point you're making. Yes, and that more often than not, a phone call to the scheduler to be specifically clear with what it is that they are or are not accepting. In other words, when it comes down to the pilot's choice of alternative trip makeup, that has to be done on the first phone call. And in order to do that, you have to have a little bit of awareness of the landscape of what trip they're trying to give you without accepting it in the first place, what trip they could choose from open time instead, or uh, what details of the electronic assignment that they can't read initially without going into crew access and really understanding what's going on, then make the phone call. Yeah, is it fair to put it this way that if when you see a change notification on crew access, the pilot has an obligation to get back to the company, but they don't have an obligation to do it through the accepting it on the electronic means. They can do it via a phone call. And for all the reasons that you've brought up, they probably should do it via a phone call rather than through the electronic acceptance. Correct. And in some cases, uh, they might want to spend five minutes on the phone with CCT and verify how things should go and then call the scheduler right back. Or they're not always in a period of contactability during a time where they receive these. So it's not like it's an immediate need to accept it or an immediate need to call the scheduler back. But many people get these on, on days off before their trip even starts. So it's not like the clock is ticking and you're, made to make a choice like on the price is right you know you have the ability to call contract compliance understand where you are uh pick up the phone call the scheduler with the plan instead of being a deer in the headlights thanks for joining us mike thanks for having me on the podcast and uh i really appreciate the uh work of everyone at cct answering everyone's phone calls and the patience of the pilots as we get back to them all right. Well, we're just about to get to Will's closing remarks, but before we do, and normally this would be a segment for Ronan O'Donohue, but he is sick at home with the coronavirus. So I'm going to fill in for him here and announce that we have an event coming up for the pilots to be involved in. I know some of you have been asking about that and anxious to, to get involved. And we have a big event planned for April 1st. So for anyone who would like to be involved in that, and, and really, I mean, let me put a plug out there. We're going to need everyone who's not working to come and join us in this big event. And that will happen, as I said, April 1st, which, as most of you, I'm sure, know, marks two years since the amendable date of the contract. This event will take place in all bases, so everyone can have a part to play in this and we, we look forward to seeing you all there. Okay. Well, what closing remarks do you have? I, I think there's plenty to, to say in closing David, but I guess I do want to emphasize a few points. Um, again, we've heard you loud and clear in your frustrations with the operation over the holiday. And, and trust me, we felt it too. A lot of us were out there. Uh, we've heard you. 
not just because we lived through it, but you know, also because nothing has ever been fixed each year. We see this over and over and over again. And again, that there's no ownership of the failures that we all experienced firsthand, right? We've heard you loud and clear that the culture here needs fixing, that you are overfeeling like your integrity and your professionalism is constantly questioned, right? That there's pressure applied by scheduling and by management and that the CBA is not respected or that its limits are pushed. And, you know, finally, I think we know and we are frustrated as well by the company's inconsistency on this COVID issue, especially quarantine and that management elected to rescind again two good MOUs that covered our interests. Trust me on this one. That point's been driven home as well as, as I said, sending them every other industry agreement so that they understand the landscape. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we also understand that that pilots are frustrated by the pace of negotiations. And we certainly share that as well. I mean, a lot of these problems uh, have existed for a long time. And we have been going to management, uh, trying to solve some pilot-centric uh, issues since the JCBA award. And, uh, you know, and now we've been in negotiations for an extended period of time. But it is a process. And a process the company is. Uh, attempted to slow down for filing uh, by filing for mediation instead of moving forward uh, towards a market contract that, uh, you know, we deserve, we have earned and that we will achieve. Uh, you know, the first two mediation sessions or the first of two mediation sessions is coming uh, a little over in a week. And then there's another in February. And of course, your negotiating committee is very well prepared for this. They've been working uh, to prepare for it for an extended period of time. And uh, will absolutely understands where you want to be and is prepared to uh, do what's needed to get there. Uh, and, and with that in mind, there's going to be some education pieces that are going to be coming out from the negotiating committee on the RLA process. You know, we hear a lot of feedback from guys that why aren't we doing this or why aren't we doing that? Or when is this going to happen? When is that going to happen? And it's understandable. The RLA is uh, it's a complex bit of legislation and uh, it's important that pilots understand the process, the timelines. So you're going to hear from uh, your MEC and your negotiating committee on this. And, uh, you know, we'll keep you very well informed of, of how the process works, where we are and what's coming next. And, how close we are to being released. Yeah, and that's true, Joe. And I think the good news is that whether it's from coffee sits or from polling or from direct feedback, you know, we hear not just these same frustrations, but more importantly, what we're hearing are the same priorities, especially in negotiations. Uh, this pilot group has been absolutely rock steady in their expectations and what they need in an agreement. The other good news is that this pilot group is truly unified around what it expects, and that makes this so much easier. And what is needed, I think, really is to preserve the unity and above all, to be professionals, as we say all the time, and look after each other, other work groups, and of course, your passengers. You know, and unfortunately, as Joe was saying, this is a long process, and we're doing all we can day in and day out to adjust to the process as well as refining our plan. Trust me, after so many calls over this last week and so many candid conversations, management here is very aware of these issues and they're very aware of how this pilot group feels. They know what needs to get fixed operationally and hopefully they know what needs to get fixed culturally and of course, what needs to get fixed at the table. You know, as I say, the, at this point, the ball is 100% in their court to deliver on the expectations of this pilot group. Let me make one final word myself. I'm coming up on 20 years at this company, and we have talked a lot on this episode about the degradation of the culture at this company and how frustrating and disappointing that is. And indeed, it is as bad as I've ever seen it in my 20 years. I'll 
end though on a slightly positive note, which is the culture among the pilots is as strong as I've ever seen it. Right. We are unified. We are aviators. We are crew members. We are taking care of each other in a way that is really inspiring. And it, it's a shot in my arm every day that I come to work in my role in the union and this pilot group. I, I couldn't be more proud to be a part of it. Yeah. And that's exactly the point that I was trying to make is that, you know, on the bright side is that this pilot group is truly unified and they truly do care about each other and about taking care of one another and about doing things as true consummate professionals. And I think everybody here, you spoke for yourself, but I'll speak for the entire MEC and for the entire volunteer structure to say we couldn't be prouder of the pilot group in, in these efforts and the patience that they've exhibited. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Will, and uh, thank the rest of you for coming in today. I'd like to also thank our listeners. You've been listening to another episode of the Alaska Pilots Podcast. I've been your host, Strategic Communications Chairman David Campbell.